You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you have a Bible and you haven't turned already, please turn to Mark chapter 15. I just said hi to Dustin. He's been gone for, what, like six weeks or something, and he asked, are we still in Mark? I said, yeah, we're still in Mark. We're still going this week and next week, and then we wrap it all up, so um, we're getting close to the end. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the suffering and coming leading up to the death of Jesus, and we've been thinking a few weeks ago about our own suffering and how it relates to Christ and what he went through. And then last week we thought specifically about Jesus going through the suffering leading up to the cross. And this morning we come to his death. And we've been seeing throughout the gospel that Israel was unaware of what God was doing. They were not in line with what God was working on and and the things that God was putting into place. And you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, maybe from the, the teenager perspective or maybe as a parent when you tell your kids, hey, it's Saturday, go clean your bedroom. And then you walk by the bedroom and you're like, nothing has happened. You know, you feel like there's zero progress that's gone on. And maybe the teenagers are like, no, there has been progress. But that's kind of like what the children of Israel were. The nation of Israel was at a loss. They were like, nothing is happening here. And God is not a teenager, not doing anything. God was actually working. He was preparing things. And there was definitely this period of silence of hundreds of years between the prophets of the Old Testament and what God is doing in the New Testament. But then when John the Baptist comes, remember we talked about this a year ago, he comes on the scene and he has one specific purpose. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. So God's been working, he's been preparing the way, and then Jesus shows up, and nobody is on the same page with God. Nobody is tracking with what God is doing. Definitely not the nation of Israel is tracking with what God is doing. And they're continually asking God, what are you up to? And that's what Mark is trying to address here. They have missed it completely. And leading up to the cross here, they're still not aware that God is in this. Even in the, the calamity of the, the Romans being here, and now this, this calamity, this, this tragedy of Jesus, for them who is a so-called Messiah, but Jesus the Messiah being brought and nailed onto a cross. God is in that. And that's what we've been thinking about over the last number of weeks, that in this suffering and in this darkness, God is there. And so this morning... Again, I'm going to try to be a little quicker this morning. We're going to try and look at three things from the text here. Okay, we're going to look at Jesus is forsaken, Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the choice. We're going to look for these things in our text. And it begins with Jesus being forsaken. Near the end of this gospel story, over the last weeks, we've seen that Jesus was... um, dropped by his disciples. Remember in the the garden and in his last moments when the arrest is coming, everybody 
runs. They run away. And then people start kind of coming. Even Peter comes onto the scene. Peter comes close, even though he denies Jesus three times. We notice that he's there. He's in this moment of kind of risk, but he ends up kind of failing in that moment. But the text here does say that there were some other disciples who were there, and they are these disciples that were the women, right? There was a couple of Marys that were there at least that we see in our text here that were with him as he's dying on the cross. In John's gospel, it says that John was also there. So there are kind of sporadically disciples and people who knew Jesus. They were there. They were kind of failing. They were in and out. So Jesus, on just like a human level, is experiencing some level of being forsaken, just on a human level. But in our text here, there's something way more serious than just being forsaken by his disciples, as painful as that was. What we see here is this level of forsakenness, if that's a word, that is infinite. It is deep. It is eternal because it's connected to Jesus and the Father himself. So let's read these verses again to set the context in our mind for what Jesus is going to be facing here. Verse 33 says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So here in the text, we see that Jesus is experiencing this forsakenness, this separation from God. However, we're, we're trying to use words to describe something that is miraculously happening here between Christ and God the Father. It says that he was forsaken. And some, some glimpses into why this is happening is the scene itself. You see the description there in verse 33? It says that there was darkness over the whole land. How do we explain that? In the middle of the day here, darkness coming over the whole land. It is a physical manifestation of what is actually happening to Jesus in that moment. Darkness is seen in the scriptures in many different lights. There's many different ways to kind of understand the symbolism or the representation of darkness that is happening. We see that here, it's a, it's a, one of the things it's a sign of is that Jesus is actually... Um, being placed on him the sins of the world. And when we see sin described in Scripture, we see it described as darkness, actually. It's described as light and darkness. And so if you're in this realm of sin, you are in the realm of darkness, meaning like there's disorientation, not sure where to go, not sure which way is up or down, not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. You're just kind of wandering through life in darkness, which I don't know if you've ever had that experience before of walking in total darkness. Clouds, no moon outside, no lights. 
You're just like, I hope I'm not stepping on something that's living. You know, that's all you're hoping for. You're just walking around. You're not sure what's going on. That's what Scripture describes this life of darkness, of sin, when it envelops you, when it kind of takes over your life. It's a way of walking in darkness. But darkness is also a sign of judgment, which is happening here on the cross. When sin is being dealt with, there is judgment that is coming down, and it's coming down in this, this picture of darkness over Jerusalem and over the land. Another time that maybe you can remember from the Old Testament where judgment is coming down and darkness is associated with it is in Exodus. When the children of Israel are trying to be released and God is saying, let my people go, let them go. And it's one thing after another, right? The frogs, the blood, all these things. And one of them is darkness comes over the land, like total darkness. This sign of judgment to the Egyptians. And it says in Exodus, it puts it in this language, it says, it is, this is what God says, it's going to be a darkness to be felt. Have you ever had that kind of darkness? Where you can almost feel it? That's the kind of judgment that came down in Egypt, and that's what's coming down here at the cross. Darkness judgment related to the sin that God is dealing with and directly related to Jesus being placed on the cross. So why did Jesus have to face that? We started talking about that last week, that Jesus put on himself the very sins of the world. Romans says that the, the conclusion of the sin that we have in our lives the brokenness in our lives, the conclusion is that the wages of sin is death. Death for each and every one of us. That's the conclusion. That is the, you know, that's your, that's your result from the sin in your lives. It's the result from the sin in my lives. And so on to his person, Jesus is taking this sin that is the wages of death. And we read these verses a few weeks ago. I think it was about three weeks ago. These very verses from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that, that spell this out. They help us understand what Jesus is doing here. It says this, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what is happening on the cross here. Jesus becomes sin for us. So that it opens a gateway for righteousness. It opens a gateway for the good news to kind of come out. Galatians 3.13 also puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? How did he actually redeem us? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul and Galatians trying to clarify for those early believers, what is it that Jesus did on the cross? Well, he became a curse, something that would incur the judgment of God. This is what Jesus took on himself. And so as we look at this scene, we see that Jesus is experiencing a, a level of being forsaken that is eternal, that is like vast, because it encompasses all of us, all of humanity. So he takes on the very darkness, the very weight of sin, and he is 
crushed by God, as it says in Isaiah 53. Listen to these verses where Isaiah describes what is called the suffering servant. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This is what's happening on the cross here with Jesus. He is being crushed. And Jesus calling out what we just read there, calling out, my God, my God, is quoting Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus is drawing from that psalm, saying, that psalm that David actually wrote, it's actually about me. It's about this moment on the cross where the sins of the world, the sins that have broken this world, are put on Christ. And so this is no ordinary forsaking. This is not just the forsaking between people. This is not just the forsaking between even people that he loves, like the disciples. This is something that is far greater. It is, like I said, it's hard for us to understand because it's, it's on a Trinitarian level. Like, I don't know how to actually explain this because God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit are the Trinity. Yet in this moment, there is somehow some sort of brokenness between that Trinity that is happening for the sake of our sin. And the level of eternal love that has existed was put off because of what Christ is actually putting on himself. Tim Keller, in his book on the Gospel of Mark, gives an example like this. He says, If after a service on Sunday morning, one of the members of my church comes to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again. He says, I will feel pretty bad. And so would I. So please don't say that to me. But then he says, but if today my wife comes to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that's a lot worse. He goes on to say, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was cut out of the dance. This great Trinitarian dance that has existed for eternity in perfect harmony and love is somehow put off in this moment where Jesus is forsaken by the Father and he is putting on himself the, the judgment and the sin of all of humanity. And in that moment, when the, when the dance is broken, Jesus yells out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of our sin, he was abandoned. Because of our brokenness, he was broken. Jesus was forsaken. But in that moment, when Jesus dies on the cross, it says here that he, in verse 37, that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So we talked about this last week, that Jesus gave his life. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it. And in that moment when he died, 
something amazing actually happened. Something new was beginning. Jesus was ushering in a new way to connect with God. And it's captured in this moment here in verse 38. Verse 38 says this. And when the, sorry, um, 37, he utters his last cry. And 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. This curtain, which is said to be a robust, thick curtain. Okay, it's not just like a little sheer thing. This is a robust curtain was torn in two. Now, we don't have a temple that we can go to and look at and see, but there's a lot of drawings. I'm sure many of you have seen them. There's great descriptions in the Old Testament and in historical writings about what the temple looked like. But the Old Testament described this building where God would reside, where God would come to. And there would be a separation, a place where regular people could not go into because it had the presence of God. And if you would go near to the presence of God in an unworthy way, that would be the end of you. And so this place was called the Holy of Holies. And someone would be able to come in. It was the high priest. And he would only be able to go in once a year, the Day of Atonement, where atonement was made for the high priest, for his own sins, then for the people around him, and for the nation itself. And he would enter into that space, that Holy of Holies, that was only set aside for God's presence to be, but for one time a year. And now into that space, this curtain is torn into opening a new kind of relationship with God. Something that the people probably didn't even have a mental place for, but they had definitely never experienced before. Something that was out of range, inaccessible, was now torn open and made accessible. Hebrews describes it this way. In Hebrews chapter 10, when the legal system and the temple system was kind of put out, it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's language that people didn't understand. Confidence. Like to just walk in. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here in this book of Hebrews, the author is using temple language sprinkling of the blood, this imagery that they would have done to, to purify this place for the high priest, only the high priest to enter in as a representative for the nation. Now he's saying, here's what Jesus has done. Through the cross, through his death, something new has started. A new way to relate to God. Not one that is based on temple practices and distance, but one now that is wide open where all people can come near to God, can experience a closeness with Him, a relationship with Him, not just as a God who is appeased of our sin, though that's resolved, that problem is taken care of, but now it says we are ones who can draw near to Him. We can come close to Him 
Like think of the relationship of someone you enjoy, someone you, you love or you know them well, and you can come to them with your greatest joys, the thing that makes you the most happy, the thing that makes you giggle, okay? Think of that relationship. And think of that same person who may be in your deepest moments, in the moments when you're crushed. You can go to them. You can draw near to them. I mean, how many people like that do we have in our lives? There's very few, because that is the intimate place of our heart. And yet here we are told, this is the new thing that God is doing. The curtain is open. This new experience of relating to our Creator, to our God, is intimate and is something that we can draw near to. And the only reason why we can enjoy it is because of Mark 15, his death on the cross. He did this for us. He was the sacrifice for us. Everything that the temple represented, Jesus summed it up in his life, his death, and then next week we'll see in his resurrection. So, when we are tempted towards religious activity, and we are all tempted towards that, because we love that it's so clear for us. If I show up every Sunday, even on a blizzardy morning, God will be happy with me. He'll be smiling down. And then we're good. Like, I know. I can just check that off. I did it. This is what religion brings into our world. It brings a sense of accomplishment and it brings a sense of clarity because it's black and white. We know what we should and shouldn't do. But what Jesus is ushering in here is grace because we never get it right. Even those who are really good at religion, those who make all the sacrifices that they need to make, give all the money that they're supposed to give. They do all the things that are expected of religion. They look the part. There is still a brokenness in all of our lives that is so subtle that even we deceive ourselves. And it's for that subtlety that God has given in grace. He has lavished his grace out on us. He just pours it out so that our relationship with him is made new, not because of what we do, but because and only because of what Jesus has done for us. This act of judgment and darkness and being forsaken and death is now a new way. It ushers in a new way to relate to God. The temple, its religion, all of its activities is gone. It's past. It never was supposed to accomplish that anyway. All it was doing was pointing people to their need for God to save them. And now the pointing is over because Jesus is the culmination of that. So Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is the only way, no matter what religion, no matter what form it is, Jesus is the only way to be in right relationship with God. And then lastly, Jesus is the choice. What do I mean by that? Well, we are inundated every day with a lot of choices. And we are influenced by all kinds of people. They, they like, they talk to us. Usually it's through earbuds, okay? Like even me, I, this summer I was running and I used the, the Nike Run app and it's talking to me as I'm running. It's trying to like encourage me, trying to keep me going. And it's like, 
I don't believe it because usually it's lying to me. It, it'll be like, you're smiling. This is so great. Keep smiling and keep running. And, you know, you're going strong. Keep going. And I'll be like, I'm walking and I'm not really smiling at all. And you can keep telling me that, but that is not the reality of what I'm experiencing, okay? But it keeps telling me, it keeps talking to me, you're doing great, you're doing great. And that's what it's like often in this world. Like we have earbuds or weeses. And the whole point of Mark's gospel, the whole gospel, is a recorded narrative that would be read out among God's people so that they would have Lord willing, a stronger influence than the voices around them. That the Roman world that they were living in, that had all kinds of messages about gods and deities, that they would see with clarity that this Jesus is like no other. And that's what Mark is trying to do. And that's why we've been slowly going through it. We want to hear collectively and individually this resounding Song, this resounding message, this resounding scripture of Jesus alone. And the question that Mark wants us to ponder in this gospel is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? And the answer to it is a, a number of different things, but the one thing is that you have to respond to Jesus because of his resurrection. We're going to talk about that next week, okay? So we're not going to talk about the resurrection this week. We're going to talk about it next week. But you have to deal with Jesus because of these claims of the resurrection. But secondly, you have to deal with Jesus because of the witnesses, the people who saw what was going on, who gave testimony, whose names are recorded here, real life people who had an experience and who saw it. Just yesterday, I was watching a, a documentary about Die Mannschaft, the German soccer team, okay? Get, I was getting, gearing up for World Cup. It starts today, so I was getting in the mental space of World Cup. I watched a documentary about the German football team when they won the World Cup in 2014. And if you are familiar with soccer at all, you'll know that that year, they destroyed Brazil by beating them seven to one. It's just like unheard of back to their city in Brazil. They had this on the documentary. The coach got up on the PA and he said, he said, today is the day that all Germans will remember. You can see a German saying that, right? <laughs> today is the day that all the Germans will remember. And he said, in 20 years, in 30 years, in 50 years, your great-grandchildren will ask you, you were there? When the Germans beat the Brazilians seven to one, can you feel like the energy in the, in the airplane? Okay. He said, you will be able to tell them you were witnesses to this event that nobody would believe ever happened. Witnesses are important. People who were there, people who experienced this thing, who saw this thing that maybe was like unbelievable, that if you wrote it down, nobody would believe that it would ever happen. But you could say, we were there. We saw this. And so in the text here, within moments of Jesus dying, there are witnesses who are recorded for us to look at and to see. And this, this new thing that Jesus is actually starting through his death on the cross, it actually bears little buds of fruit already. So let's just quickly look at these three groups of people or individuals who we see were there and were changed by this. 
The first is the group of women that were there, the Marys. Verses 40 and 41 say this, And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Listen, the point of them putting these names in here is very specific. It is very pertinent to what's going on here. It is to say these people were there. And their children, Salome, Joseph, are people that you can go and talk to. Because these women, we know them from the narrative that they were probably healed by Jesus. Mary Magdalene was for sure. They were healed by Jesus. They believed in him when he was teaching. They followed him. We find out in other texts that they probably funded some of his ministry. They were there. They believed in Jesus. And now Mark is saying they're still there when the going gets tough. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he is dead before them, they are there. They are present. They're still holding on to Jesus, even in this moment of suffering. They're still trusting in him. That somehow he is going to work this out. That he is the Messiah. And Mark is saying, if you want to talk to them, or if you want to talk to their boys, here's their names. They can tell you they were witnesses. They saw this. Then the next one, in verse 42, is Joseph of Arimathea. It says this, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here's Joseph. Most likely this council that Mark is referring to is the Sanhedrin, that mix of different religious leaders. And Joseph is actually a part of that. He's a part of the religious establishment. But it says that he was looking. He was looking for the kingdom. He was waiting for the Messiah. And I don't know if he was like on the fence with Jesus or what did it. But in this moment, after Jesus is dead, he, look what it says there. It says that he took courage. Oh man, in that moment, he took courage. Probably courage on both sides to step away from the council and say, I'm going to do something for this guy who calls himself the Messiah. And also to take courage to go before the Romans and ask for Jesus' body. So on both sides, the religious side, the Roman side, the left, the right, conservative, liberal, whatever it is, he's saying, I'm willing to actually take a step, a risk here for Jesus. I'm going to step into this space and I'm going to do it with courage. And the last individual is the soldier going up to verse 39. It says this, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said this, Truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man was the Son of God. You know, Mark has been recording this whole gospel with little tidbits of, what are you going to make of Jesus? How are you going to make sense of this person who's coming and doing these things? And all along the way, people are confused. They don't know what Jesus is. They're following him, and there's hopes, but there's no clarity. This is the first time in the text where there's clarity. And it's a Gentile, Roman soldier, 
outside of the realm of Jesus' you know, nation of Israel. It's the total outsider. The person that you would never expect. The Roman soldier who would have grown up in a Roman house, possibly with deities in his house, or maybe regularly saying, there is a son of God and his name is Caesar. Now he stands before the cross. And when he witnesses what is happening before him, the only thing that he can say is, truly, this man was the Son of God. He actually identifies Jesus for who he is, the Son of the God, his Savior. The witnesses here, the believing women, the religious outsider, and now this Gentile, unsaved soldier, all are looking to Jesus to do something new in the world around them and in their own lives. I guess the question then for us as we ponder this 2,000 years later is, what do we do with Jesus? We've been studying this now for weeks, or maybe this is your first time here. Welcome to Mark. The question to ponder over is, what will you do with Jesus? Do you find your place in the place of the believing women? You've been believing in Jesus for a long time, and he's been healing you in different ways, and now you're confronted with the cross. Or do you find yourself in a state of religiosity, and that's all you know about relating to God is religion? Or maybe you find yourself totally identifying with a centurion soldier. You are an outsider. You don't even know if you know Jesus. But now when you are confronted with the cross, and you ponder the cross, the question remains, what will you do with him? What will be your answer when it comes to Jesus? Because he leaves no option for us to just sit and not answer that question. There's too much about him that leaves this question open. And so this morning, like the 43 other weeks, we want to ponder Jesus. And in Mark 5, if you'll remember, just to end our time here in Mark 5, there is this amazing story of this woman who comes near to Jesus. And she's been suffering from bleeding, it says in the text, for 12 years. Unresolved medical issue. And in the story, it says that she's just going to try. Just one time. She's going to not do it in a fancy way. She's going to actually sneak up behind Jesus and just touch his cloak. And just maybe... Just maybe something will happen. A miracle will happen. Healing will happen. And so she does that. She kind of sneaks up. There's a whole big crowd around Jesus. She sneaks up, and I don't know how it looked, but she just kind of reaches through and touches his garment. And she is healed in that moment. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows something has happened, and he, he makes a bit of a fuss. He's like, no, who did this? Who touched me? She finally comes forward. Her story is public. She is outed in a sense. And what does Jesus say to her? Listen to these words. And, and think about it in your own life. The, the things that you're facing. The things that you struggle with. The way that you come to God. Either thinking you have it all put together. Or in your brokenness and weakness. Coming to him. What do you think is the disposition of Christ when you come to him in the position that you're imagining or the position that you're feeling? What is his disposition towards us? Get it together, man. 
Do the right stuff. This is what he says to the woman. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Be freed. God will not take away everything that we are suffering with, but what he has promised to do is free us from our greatest problem, the greatest issue that faces each and every one of us, and that is the sin that continually butts up against our lives. He says, I've resolved that issue, but what I'm doing now is actually giving you freedom, the grace of God, to go into any suffering that you live through and to have me present with you, curtain open, new relationship, new life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this powerful passage of Jesus dying on the cross for us. Thank you for the the grace that we can experience. And God, I pray that this morning we would just have seared into our minds the grace that we can enjoy in Jesus because of the work of the cross. And Lord, where there is a misunderstanding, where there's lack of clarity, where there's just unbelief, I pray that your spirit would settle those things in and that Jesus would leave an imprint on our lives.